The Going Up, Going Down podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's Going Up, Going Down podcast, an EFL podcast brought to you by The Athletic. On today's episode, we talk to a League One manager. We focus on a League One superstar. I've got an EFL rewind, which I'm keeping to myself until the end of the podcast. And we also talk to Nancy Frostick, Sheffield Wednesday writer for The Athletic, about the current wranglings between Sheffield Wednesday and the EFL. On the line with me today is George Ellick, as always, the Paul Rayner to my Steve Evans. George, great to be chatting EFL once again. (laughs) That is niche, but I'm looking forward to this podcast and all of our podcasts are completely free and ad-free versions are available to Athletic subscribers. So much good audio content at this time. Obviously, no football going on at the moment, but that does not mean the Athletic is stopping providing the very, very best audio and written content across the platforms. If you haven't signed up already, I would recommend doing so now. You can get a 40% discount by using the promo code at theathletic.com forward slash EFLpod. That's 40% off theathletic.com forward slash EFLpod. So we kick off with not the back pages, EFL news that you may have seen or you may have missed with so much good content in this week's episode. It's only a swift one. Clubs and the EFL are dealing with the current situation day by day and, and there have been no major announcements as yet on what will happen to the season or when football will return. What we have seen on Thursday morning is that Leeds players and senior staff have agreed a wage deferral to deal with the impact of the coronavirus. This was following a catch-up between Angus Kinnear, the chief executive, the director of football, Victor Orta, and several senior players. The decision made by the squad to defer part of their own salaries to ensure that the club can continue to pay 272 members of full-time staff and the majority of casual staff For the coming months, Phil Hay, who is the Leeds United writer for The Athletic, has said that he expects other clubs to follow. This came a day or two after it emerged that players earning over £6,000 a week at Birmingham City have been requested to take a 50% deduction in salary for the next four months. So we will learn more about this, more about what other clubs will do in the coming days. And on to some news as well in the National League. You may be wondering why this affects the EFL, but I think because of the way the leagues are sorted, any decision the National League make on what's going to happen with their campaign will have a knock-on effect onto the EFL and the Premier League. And there's some confusion here because it was reported yesterday that the National League has asked the Football Association to close their season. It was widely reported that they had voted to call the season null and void. But since then... Ian Everett, the Barrow manager, who at top of the league has said that he still thinks there's a chance they will find another resolution. The Boreham Wood chairman has come out saying that as far as he is concerned, the National League will still try and complete the season. So any obituaries, let's say, of the uh, 1920 National League season may be a little bit premature. And the impact this will have on League Two and the relegation race there, the possibilities for Stevenage to retain their league status, we will wait and see, keep our eye on the stories that develops and keep you posted as to what is happening down in the non-league. But let's get a bit of news as well from a current EFL manager. Earlier, we dialed up Carl Robinson, the manager of Oxford United, to ask for his view on current events and on League One in general this season. In the last week or so, Carl, I guess with government advice becoming clearer and stronger, it feels like a lot of the 
the, the questions about how clubs could operate uh, have been cleared up. So how, how have Oxford United and how has your work changed with that this week? Um, well, to be honest with you, when, when I think it was the th- Friday the 13th, weirdly when we got the, the announcement from the EFL that we wouldn't be playing on the 14th on the Saturday, we basically right away, we felt it was right that we pushed all our players away for seven, eight days and to see where the world was going to be in that period of time. Obviously, the following Thursday, we, we realised that obviously we're, we weren't allowed back into work. So we, we've sort of been apart since that day, really. And I think the most important thing, and one thing we've been very, very adamant with our players and, and with the, the staff internally, is uh, our health and, and our well-being is, is far more important than football at this particular time, really. And we've, you, But at the same time, I say all of that, every Oxford United supporter would, was hoping that this could be the year that no one really believed that would be our opportunity, really. And so you you sort of you caught in between two two thought processes. One that you've got to think about health and and people's families, and the other one is that we still want to stay ultra competitive once we're over this period of time. And we all know it, it'll become a day when this is something that we'll speak about in the past. But we we've still got to make sure that our players stay in tip-top condition to waiting for the opportunity to play again. We've all been reading about how various clubs are helping to keep their players stay physically fit during this difficult time where they, for the most part, have to be isolating in their homes. What about psychologically? I know that yourself as a a manager and Oxford as a club um, uh, have been at the forefront, really, of of a lot of um, uh, emotional management to, to some extent yeah. with Ga- Gary Bloom does a lot of work with the club a psychotherapist yeah. it's been written about on the Athletic website how are you trying to check on the players and keep their spirits high at a time where many will be lonely anxious and, and all the other feelings that we're all feeling yeah I, th- I think last week we, we were speaking about what is it footballers miss the most and, and in a really weird way to regime I think I think as a, as, as a human nature we all miss that we all moan about having to be in a meeting at 10 o'clock or lunch being at one or, or, or finishing at whatever time it may be. But actually, it's probably the one thing that most of us have missed the most, a structure uh, or a purpose. So, and we, we're we very lucky. We, we don't believe in any individual players bigger than what we're trying to achieve. So we're a very, very close group of people. And having spoken to all the players last week, that's the biggest thing they felt that they missed so that they can keep themselves fit and ticking over and... And it's important that we don't do too much too now because you'll also have that burnout aspect aspect as well when when they come back. So we 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 got on Zoom this week and we've set we had a ten o'clock meeting Monday Tuesday we've just had one this morning and we've had another one tomorrow. And what that does it just allows us to connect the staff come on at nine till ten, and we go through all of the things that maybe issues that we can foresee, uh, planning and preparation, and then the players come on and we just go with them for fifteen minutes and see how they all are. Uh, and today was we did a, a fitball session and a, a skipping session and a press up session, um, all on Zoom. We actually invited I think uh, two fans who joined in our session today, um, and two of the ladies team. And we've actually filmed it. Uh, so you you see me greeting him. Elliot Moore came on for the first time after him having the baby, uh, not him, his missus. And you, we invited Rob Hall back, who's away on loan. So we're, we're going to, that'll be released later on today and you'll see obviously most of our lads are in great spirits and just trying to keep ourselves as occupied as possible but still as a group yet so far away from each other. And by the time we were we finished, even the staff said, it's, it's nearly 12 o'clock now and we, we've been on that for for almost sort of two and a bit hours. So it was it was brilliant really and it, it, does, it, does, it, it gives me some sort of regime as well personally. And then I try and speak. To, I spoke to every player yesterday as well. So I've been trying to speak to them individually, as well as collectively. So that's the way we try to stay in contact. Carl, of course, people think of football clubs and they think of the first team only. But it's fair to say that your role at Oxford spans much wider, maybe than just first team manager. I know you're someone who likes to get involved in every aspect of the club, and you've got the, the match yeah. day staff, you've got the staff at the stadium, you've got the academy. How has it been for you trying to to keep in touch with those people that maybe us as fans or us as football fans don't know much about or don't really think about? Yeah, I think it's it is so important that you we're such a big big industry and there's so many people that go unmentioned a lot of the time and in this in this moment there'll be financial worries and I've just read about Leeds this morning about their players 
Um, I know that Hearts has been a number of football clubs have found it's a very difficult period. Um, and it's important that we as a football club stick by everybody, whether it be the academy players, the academy staff, the community staff, or, or even the people that work in the, in the stadium. And I think we've tried to stay in contact with everybody. I think within the senior management group, I think we've all been in contact with everybody. We've tried to keep them in contact through group messaging and, and group uh, Zoom sessions and equally individually individual phone calls, see where they're all at. Gary Bloom is also phoning around everybody individually as well. Um, and they all have his number in a time that they might need it. Uh, and who's to say that we don't wake up tomorrow and we need to make that phone call to to sort of have a conversation and put things a little bit more in perspective for us. So we, we, we've tried to we've tried to cater for every part of the football club and one thing that we're trying to do, and I think one thing we had at Oxford obviously coming from where they've been and down to into the conference and building the way up, I did feel that was a necessity that we built the football club a little bit bigger. Um, and when you, people might see that from the outside on the pitch, but it's a much bigger football club now than what it was a few years ago and We've got so much more staff that we've got to make sure that we take care of and look after them through this difficult time as well. Carl, just to touch on footballing matters, uh, how about yeah. that? How about that League One promotion race, eh? Oh, <laughs> Oxford brilliant. very much in the mix. Five wins in a row before the yeah. suspension of football. Uh, one of three teams on sixty points. There's also three teams on fifty-nine points, and above that group of six, Rotherham on sixty-two and Coventry on sixty-seven. I mean, it must be chaos. During the season, Oxford played eight league games in about a month. But now you've got a bit of time, unusually, to sort of sit and have a look back. I mean, what are it's you thinking a, at the moment? It's been, do you know what, I've, I've done this for quite a while and you can tell with the lines on my forehead that But I've absolutely loved this year. I've loved the fun aspect of it. I've loved the competitive nature of it. Um, we've played in some horrific weather con- conditions we we've had everything. We've had the perfect performances. We've had the most horrific performances I've ever seen. We've had um, g- games that have finished in the last minute with winners. Even the game against Shrewsbury, the last game we played, two 0 down, and they get a man sent off. We end up winning three two. It's been an unbelievable year, and and to think of, to top it all off, if you look at the cup competitions, to to say that a League One team have played Newcastle twice, Manchester City, and West Ham United in one league season. We've had a great year. I think you know you mentioned before it. It actually wasn't eight; it was nine games that we played in twenty-eight nine days. So I said this to somebody on another interview the other day that we've proven that this can be done in twenty. We've got nine games to play, and we've already proven that we can do this in in that period of time. And people can say, "Oh, that's a bit crazy," but nobody really worried when it was Oxford doing it on our own. <laughs> so. Like I say, when people talk about coming back to play, that I don't think it's it's that bad if we have to play Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday for one month of the year, and we've proved it. But it's been a crazy, crazy year, and but it's one I've, I've loved every single second of it, and to see the attendance grow, um, to see the stadium full a few times as well, uh, it's just, it's just been a year that we've we've really enjoyed. There's just one thing left to do now, and we're just sat here waiting to hopefully get that opportunity. Carl, it's fair to say you've got probably more on the line than most people involved in football with your the club you manage in third in League One and the club that you support top of the Premier League by quite a distance. Oh, I'm having a nightmare, after. aren't I? <laughs> Just wondering, I mean, as both uh, you know, a manager of a side doing well and a fan of a side who, uh, yeah, getting a title they've been after for quite a while, what, what do you think would be, is the most likely way this season's going to finish? And what do you think would be the fairest thing to happen if, for whatever reason, we can't complete it? I think we will complete it. Um, I think you talk at the top of our game. I think there's too much money involved. Sadly, I think that's a. I think that when they sign contracts with with the big media companies, that there's a, a necessity to fill it. You read in articles about how much money certain TV companies are losing and how much money they pump into football. It's quite remarkable. Um, so I think, regardless, whenever that may be, if you if you I, I'm not if you were, if you were asking me to put my my sort of my thoughts on the line I would think that in the month of June we could play maybe one or two things behind closed doors and hopefully by the mid back end of June that we could get people back into stadium that's still a long time away I know that um, I can't see why the players can't have July off and pre-season in only four weeks in August <clears throat> and then we can start the season begin the September and just move the season back two weeks and even in that month of August I can't see why we can't play the the leasing.com as our pre-season friendlies, 
leading into next season. I think that would tick an awful lot of boxes. It would reduce the games that we play in the season, using the cup competitions as, as our friendlies. We don't have to scratch around and find games to play in over that month. Uh, I, I, but like I say, that we're all in the hands of other people's health and while we're talking about an industry that we love so much, there's people's lives being taken by this in this dreadful moment as well. So it, you, you sort of it's great. Sometimes talking about football makes you feel a little bit disconnected from the world right now, which is which is the reason why we love it. Um, but equally, when you come back down to earth, you understand that it is a crisis going on. That we've got to be totally respectful to that as well. There'll be a lot of fans around the EFL as well, Carl, who uh, are maybe looking at certain loan players or players out of contract that are important. You know, with, with Matt Taylor and Marcus Brown <laughs> being two very key players in the run of form towards the back end uh, yeah. of the season that we saw. What, what, what's your understanding or are there any kind of processes in place to try and ensure that those players are still wearing yellow come the uh, the resumption of football? <laughs> we, we're a bit selfish here, aren't we? <laughs> um, yeah, I'll, um, for me personally, I, I can't see why we've agreed to pay till if it was the end of May or the end of June. Why? Because I think even the top clubs are going to be, they're going to have loan players as well and they're going to have situations that they need to deal with. I, I can foresee these players staying with us um, seeing the season out, uh, and then because what the beauty, that's the beauty about it. But the one thing about the situation is everybody's in the same position, so it's not like there's a there's one football club going to seek to gain any sort of advantage. We all we all I've got to deal with this in the same way, and I think if all the loans get stalled and stopped, um, and we pick them back up again when we start playing, I, I can't. The big the big thing for me is. Well, the two things that I'm most worried about is is the reduced transfer window that we may have next season. Uh, and the other one is, how are young players meant to seek to gain a footballing contract when the managers or nobody can see them play? So I, for these young white yeses or scholars where they sit right now, they're in a very difficult predicament as well because their careers are about to, might have been over or, or just starting. So the, it, there's so many things, whether it be the loan players, the transfer window, first-year pros, we've got so many unanswered questions. But one thing I would love to say is that I think the EFL have been magnificent as well. Uh, and uh, I think people need to understand that the com- the conversations that they're having with us, they're living in a very uncertain time and not quite known either. And I think we're very, very lucky to have some like Rick Parry in charge of our of our leagues, somebody who's who's been at the top of the game and been an instrumental figure within within the Premier League when it first started and at Liverpool as well for a period of time we were worked under. He's a very, very good man. I don't think we could have we could be in better hands trying to find a way around all these decisions that we're all trying to seek some sort of guidance over. And I don't think any of us can be too harsh or critical on the EFL. They're gonna to have to make some decisions along this way that we don't agree with. But they can't make a decision just to make one football club happy. They have to go with the with the, the main core group of teams. And like I say, we've got to make sure that we're all we're all behind our governing body and we're all behind the decisions that they make and we accept them in the right way as well. So the in-focus feature has pivoted somewhat over the last few weeks from an in-depth look at clubs as a whole to some of the young talents in the EFL. So we looked at Jude Bellingham, the Birmingham wonder kid who's tipped to join potentially Dortmund, maybe even Manchester United, Ebere Eze, was profiled in depth, a player that we expect to be lighting up the Premier League at some point in the near future. We talked to Ryan Conway, Derby writer for The Athletic, about a fantastic crop of young players coming through at Derby County, all at the same time, all around the same age. But this week, George, it's time to go to League One to focus on another player with someone that we think has a huge future in the game. Yes, it's Peterborough's Ivan Tony at 24 years old, just recently 24. I suppose he's getting to that stage where you maybe can't really call him too young a player anymore, but certainly a player with masses and masses of ability and a player that I'm very, very keen on to see how he's going to progress going forward. After speaking about Aberi Eze a couple of weeks ago, we've now seen him linked to Tottenham over the la- in the last week or so. So hopefully Ivan Tony is listening and is delighted that we're flagging him as one of the best talents in the EFL. But he, you know, this is no secret with Tony. He scored 24 goals in 32 League One games. He scored 26 goals in all competitions. He leads the League One goal scoring charts by nine goals. And right now, at, at the time of recording, his 
importance, I mean, at least when football finished kind of two weeks ago, his importance to Peterborough and his dominance in this league was never more obvious. Uh, he was obviously scoring a lot of goals. He's obviously top of the goal scoring charts, but they won six games in a row, Peterborough, in a massive run of form with him, Siriki Dembele and Sammy Smodix, the front three. He was then suspended for two games. In the three consecutive games before that suspension, they scored four goals in each of them. So it's 12 goals in total with him at the four. He was suspended for two games. They picked up just one point in those two games. When he returned, they beat Portsmouth 2-0, getting a goal and an assist. You can really see sometimes the impact that players have when they come out of the side and how that impacts the team. And with Tony, it's it's stark. Earlier on this season, he was a key part of a, of a trio in Moisa, Marcus Madison and himself, who really set the league alight. And I wrote a piece. I seem to remember you writing an article about that very trio for The Athletic, George. I did. So if you want to, I mean, it's, it's obviously a bit dated now, but if you want <laughs> to read up a bit about the background of Tony, um, I'd recommend finding it uh, on The Athletic and, and lots of it still rings true. And I'm going to talk through a, a couple of things I found out about him just to talk about the kind of the, the man, I guess, and, and the story and the process to get to this stage. Now, as I say, at 24 years old, and never really scoring goals out of League One before. You have to wonder why such a talent hasn't made that step up in the past. But even as that posh front three has developed from Isa, Madison and Tony into Dembele, Smodix and Tony, he has been the constant as Isa has fallen away and Madison has moved on to pastures new. And he's been something of a nomadic figure, you have to say, since breaking through at Northampton about seven years ago. Uh, it was Chris Wilder who really brought him to the fore. Chris Wilder taking over at Northampton uh, when they were bottom of the Football League brought in a teenage Tony who was crucial to staying up that season, scoring a brace against Dagenham and Redbridge in the penultimate game in order to see them almost safe. And that form meant he was snapped up by Newcastle. Graham Carr, the well-renowned scout, uh, signed him up when Steve McLaren was manager, but that was the season they ended up getting relegated to the championship. And Rafa Benitez was brought in to bring them back there. And, you know, a raw striker who hadn't really had much success uh, or hadn't really shown much outside of League Two, really, wasn't exactly what Benitez was after in order to take them back into the Premier League, which is what he was tasked with doing. So a few loans followed. He went to Barnsley twice. He went to Shrewsbury. He went to Scunthorpe twice. And he went to, to Wigan. And he was decent in, in patches. You know, he showed the ability that he had, but he was by no means dominant. And in writing the piece of The Athletic, I spoke to local journalists at the time who said that Tony himself spoke of how frustrating he found it, that he would play men's football, do okay, go back to Newcastle, go straight into the under-23s and be playing a completely different style of the game. You could see and, how that would make it very difficult to find a rhythm of sorts, especially as a, a goal scorer. But when you take the plunge and move to Peterborough, with their history of strikers, George, you, you know that you're going to get a decent chance to, to be part of a, a very high-scoring team, shall we say. Well, and there's no doubt that the people behind the scenes at Peterborough understand that they are happy to part with a fair bit of cash in order to buy elite strikers, which they know they'll be able to flip very quickly. We talk, of course, about George Boyd, Aaron McLean and Craig McHale-Smith, but you also think of Britta Sombolonga, you think of Dwight Gale. I mean, these are players who've gone on to great, great things. And, and I spoke to George Boyd back when, uh, back when I was writing the piece a few months ago. And he said about Moise, he said Mo is a fantastic finisher, but Ivan has all the attributes other than just scoring goals. And that is the key to Ivan Tony. Quite clearly a prolific goal scorer with 24 goals. Quite clearly a player who is really enjoying, you know, spending more than just one season at the same club. This is the first time since Northampton that he's had regular football over a period longer than a season at the same team and it's paying dividends. But he's so much more than just a prolific goal scorer. He is athletic. I mean, the... the uh, the, the official website and all the official channels suggest that he's five foot ten inches. I'm not having that at all. It's another one. We've spoken about this before. It's another You've got one a real the, bee in your bonnet here. <laughs> where it's, it's one for the dubious height committee to meet when they when they meet up again in a few in a few months' time. According to Football Manager, he's six foot two, and I think that is much more reflective on the frame and, and the power that he possesses. He's someone with a very very good touch. He's good with both feet. He's good in the air, and he's also very very quick at running the channels. He can play. He, he, you know, his best position is certainly in the middle of a three. But even when he plays there, he's not that target man. He drops into channels. He finds space in between the centre-backs and the full-backs. Uh, he's also he's got so many aspects to his game in the way that he scores goals. It, of his 26 goals in all competitions this season, 15 have been with a stronger foot from open play. 
his right foot three with his left foot six headers and two penalties so you see he's not just a player who is good on the ground he's not just a player who'll beat you in the air he can do it all and Darren McAntony who is the the Peterborough owner uh, again when I was writing the piece I spoke to him and or I, I got some quotes from him via email and he was so bullish on how good Tony is. He was saying back in, I think it was September or October, that Ivan Tony was you know, a £10 million plus player and that he was a player who would undoubtedly, undoubtedly be playing in the Premier League within two years. And this raised eyebrows. I mean, certainly when I read it, I, I thought it was quite bullish. Now, it looks totally fair. I mean, this is a player, in my opinion, who is ready not just for a step up to the Championship, but should be a player that teams in the bottom half of the, the Premier League looking for a striker should be looking at. I mean, the price tag that will come with it may ward some off, given that he hasn't scored championship goals. But he is one of the few players, and you don't get this very often, where you can absolutely say that he is playing at a level below the level he should be playing at. Peterborough themselves are currently, as it stands, just uh, in the playoff picture. They're one of the clutch of teams on 59 points. You have to think that without him, given how dominant he's been, given how good a goal scorer he is, they would be far, far below that. And I, I know there are Peterborough fans who think that he is possibly the best striker they've seen come through there, which, which is huge praise. And from what I'm seeing and from the development we're seeing, again, this is just the first time since he was a teenager that we've seen him have a consistent run of games over a prolonged period for the same size. We've seen him develop so quickly and seen every side of his game would appeal to, to coaches and fans. You know, he's, he's not a one-trick pony. He can do it all. The ceiling is so high for Tony. And naturally, you and I, given our EFL um, you know, bias, you might say. <laughs> we're going to be ones. You were looking. To, you were definitely looking for another word there, but let's call it yeah. EFL bias. But, but we're going to possibly, you know, push the agenda more for these players. But I think in Tony's case, the evidence is there. Anyone who knows him is there. This is a Premier League striker playing in League One, and I'm really excited to see. I mean, Darren McCanty won't, won't like me for saying it, but really excited to see where he's going to be playing his football next season. I think that the few aspects to this that I think are, are most interesting as a discussion point uh, firstly I should say that uh, Ivan Tony was on the highlight show Saturday night highlight show that I work on uh, just before this amazing run of, of goal scoring form that Peterborough and he have experienced in the last few months and he was very quiet incredibly determined incredibly polite and well-mannered and he was clearly thriving with the added responsibility that he's got on the pitch, but also he'd been given the captain's armband for a few games. And, you know, it it sounds almost a bit romantic, this, but you could you could tangibly see what he was offering to the team in terms of that leadership quality. And those are big tests for a player like Tony, especially when there are, are scouts watching from the Premier League and scouts watching from the top end of the championship. It's never just going to be about the amount of goals scored. They're looking for so many other things. And I think over the last few months, it's become clearer and clearer, even compared to September, October time when he was racking up the goals. It's become clearer and clearer that this is a player playing at a higher level. The question that I think is most interesting is stepping up from League One to the Premier League. How how easy is that? Which club, how, how important is which club you choose to go to? I think there's probably a little bit of League One snobbery around um, when the quotes that Darren McAntony was talking about for Tony's transfer fee in January, and there are a few teams at the top of the championship looking to, to buy him and, to, and McAntony quoting, you know, £10 million and more. The people that do turn their nose up at that, and that's partly because it's pretty unprecedented from a League One side. Even some of the better League One players, midfielders and defenders that have been sold over the last few years, we're looking at generally at between one and three million pounds. So it would be pretty unprecedented, but you can see why he's holding out for that. And, and to anyone who thinks that League One to the Premier League would be too big a leap, it's true that I think at this stage, what we've seen is a two-league leap in terms of a transfer is difficult in the short term for a player. We've seen at all levels, really, a, a few players move from League Two to the Championship, highly rated in League Two, dominating that division, struggling when they get to the second tier. I dare say there haven't been too many League One to Premier League movers, uh, but when they've made the move, you know, it does take a little bit of time to adapt. But if you look at 
the goal scorers in the Premier League. If you look at the goal scoring charts, you've got players like Jamie Vardy, who, of course, at a, an age around the same age as Tony, maybe older, was playing even lower down the league one. You've got the likes of Danny Ings, Dom Calvert-Lewin, Chris Wood and Callum Wilson. All of these are strikers, established Premier League strikers who played plenty of League One football uh, at, at a younger age. So I would say don't write someone off because of where they are. Watch the player, um, try and understand their capabilities and work out where they might fit. And for all the reasons you mentioned, that the, the profile that Tony has as a striker, so comfortable playing up front on his own, but also good at bringing others into play. He's such a, a physical threat, as you say, in the air with his back to goal, but also has plenty of other parts to his game as well. So a, a really interesting player. For me, the best player in League One by quite some distance. You can see that in the goal scoring charts uh, and someone that we can't wait to see uh, develop over the next few years and see where he ends up. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com going and pay the postage of £4.95. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener of The Athletic Podcasts, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver you a case with a different theme. So far, themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is chucked in too. Just go to beer52.com forward slash going to get your case free. And don't forget right now, Going up, going down, listeners, get two extra free beers. So delighted to be joined on the line by Nancy Frostick, the Athletics Sheffield Wednesday reporter. How are you doing, Nancy? Yeah, all good, thank you. Good. A bit of a funny time, I'm guessing, in terms of covering football when there's no football, the challenges that all of us are facing. So some news, of course, last week, Nancy, uh, with Sheffield Wednesday, which you wrote a piece on, which went out earlier in the week with the EFL charges dropped against owner Chanziri, what's next for Wednesday? So I'm guessing for anyone who hasn't been keeping up with the news or has foolishly not read your piece, can you just explain to us what the news is and what it means for, for Wednesday going forward? Yeah, sure. So um, in the original uh, EFL charges that were kind of brought against the club, uh, they charged the club separately to a few individuals. So that was Chanziri, um, the former chief exec. Um, and their finance director um, and so it's been locked in arbitration for a while um, both sides going back and forth with various legal arguments and now um, the EFL have, have just dropped the charges against uh, against the three individuals so um, now moving forwards it will go on to the uh, independent uh, panel where uh, the club will obviously have to answer those charges um, and that's where we're talking you know if, if that's upheld uh, for the EFL's favour, uh, so to speak, then that's where we're talking some sort of punishment that could come out of this um, for Wednesday. With the fact that the counter charge was only, uh, you know, the, was only in relation to the individuals, does that mean there was, a, there was no counter charge on the club itself? Uh, Is that how it works? Or was, the, or, or was that kind of not upheld and it was only the case against the individuals that was dropped? Uh, so the, I mean, the club brought um, a counter claim on I think on all cases so on there uh, just for the club and for the individuals that's why it was all taken to arbitration um, but in terms of what's been dropped it is just um, the charges against the individuals so um, the club still has to answer um, some of that in front of this independent panel next. Certainly for someone who doesn't understand all the uh, all the nuances of a charge like this it, it seems slightly unusual that they would have brought a charge against individuals as well as the club very much linked to what they are uh, accusing the those individuals of doing for the club therefore nancy 
does the fact that these individuals have been cleared give the club some hope, some vindication that the more serious, certainly in footballing terms, charge against Sheffield Wednesday as a whole will uh, will go in their favour? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, throughout all of this, everyone's had to become a, a legal expert or <laughs> become way more clued up on this than, than they might have liked to. But um, yeah, I think... There's definitely reason for for Wednesday to take confidence from this and also kind of just in the context of the time. I mean, Birmingham recently got their um, their case, um, recent case dropped. So it's things like that, which will hopefully, you know, give the give Wednesday fans a bit of confidence in what is a pretty testing time in their support of the club. Um, Because like you say that there is a link between obviously the individuals and the club and the individuals will have been involved in what's happened in these allegations so it's kind of um there there are links there to be made that could help um at the next stage you mentioned in the piece that should the efl charges be upheld wednesday could face a range of sanctions although there's thought a points deduction is most likely you mentioned that the 21 point deduction is the maximum possible but a nine point deduction at this current stage would see wednesday drop into the championship relegation zone crazy to think just a few months ago they were sitting pretty in third place but is there a feeling I mean obviously we don't know when football is going to start again or what's going to happen with this season but is there a concern at Hillsborough that a relegation is a significant possibility should this should the charges be upheld um it's a bit of an odd one because I think they've to some extent had to sort of shelve any focus on this charge as much as possible but you can obviously see with results that whether it's just you know a poor run of form or it is a distraction um things haven't been going to plan um but like you say there's not a lot in it so really i think if you're not looking at um kind of the impacts that could be coming with this charge then it it'd be a bit daft not to consider that um as a possibility and that you know with the virus and everything else and we don't know where we're at with the season 10 games left in theory so there's a lot still to be done like i think 9 or 10 games left but you know there's it could come down to the wire, really, on this um, if if there is a big deduction. And Nancy, could you explain a little bit about how the case is actually taking place and who is making the ultimate decision? We understand that it's currently Sheffield Wednesday versus the EFL. Who will make that final decision? And is there any idea of, of timescale? Um, yeah, so on the um, who makes the decision, I think this is actually an area where there's been some confusion. So obviously the EFL bring the charges and um, it's my understanding that when it goes in front of this panel, the people that are appointed are independent of the EFL. So it's not um, the case that, you know, it's the EFL versus Wednesday on one side of the table and the other. Um, it's my understanding that the EFL on Wednesday make their points and their cases to this panel and then they decide. Um, they'll also decide um, the punishment, if any, um, and other things like that, timing of that. Um, so it's in terms of moving forward in timing, um, we don't know how long this is going to take, as has been for the, the rest of everything else, which isn't ideal. But I think given that there's been a break in the season, obviously, um, the EFL probably having possibly having less to do in terms of you know smaller niggly things like appealing red cards and all those other sort of organisational things. But then it's whether people are self isolating and can't turn up to all these various meetings that need to take place. So um, I know the EFL were definitely hopeful of getting it done before the summer. This was before all the the break in the season. Um, so I think we're looking probably over the next couple of months, but. If it does drag out, then it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> um, you mentioned in the piece that a significant part of this case, and at least the defence of Sheffield Wednesday, was that whilst the valuation and the sale and the lease back of Hillsborough was going through, uh, whilst that process was, was taking place, Sean Harvey, who was then chairman of the EFL, was aware of what was going on and had approved what was going on. Now, Rick Parry is the new chairman who seems to maybe have a different perspective on the way that clubs uh, are looking to meet the profit and sustainability regulations. Do you know how central that is to Wednesday's defence? Are they looking to prove that what they did in itself was legal or are they looking just to say that, well, 
you were fine with it at the time so it's a bit unfair you're now coming back and telling us that we couldn't do it um i think in this situation um it's not the the sale and lease back of hillsborough isn't actually um a breach in itself that's a loophole in in the efl's laws because they fell in line with the premier league who obviously i don't think any premier league club realistically is going to need to do that um so obviously we've seen a few clubs, handful of clubs, Villa and Derby and Reading as well, doing this um, to make sure they meet FFP. Um, so yeah, Wednesday's sort of defence is that, well, we told you about this, um, you signed off and said it was fine, and now you've kind of changed your mind on it. Um, so if they've got the paper trail to prove that and you know they've got that evidence available to them, then that's obviously what they'll, they'll bring. Um, but it is just a case of beyond Wednesday, you're moving into questions of how the EFL govern and how um, they want to tackle things because there is a bit of a shift, obviously, with um, with new people coming in and, and how they want to enforce discipline and enforce the regulations and things um, like that. So it's, it's bringing up more issues than just FFP and just um, whether Wednesday should be punished. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, which is an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. With spring on the horizon, it's time to get your wardrobe sorted for the warmer weather and Stitch Fix will help you with that. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic and you fill in a style quiz which tells Stitch Fix all about your personal style, budget, size and shape and your clothing needs and wants. At that stage, a personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each handpicked especially for you from a selection of 100 brands, including established names and up-and-coming designers. What you do then is once you've received the clothes, you try on everything at home and mix them with other items in your wardrobe. At that stage, you pay for what you love and what you want to keep, and you send back the rest. For the stylist's time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. So it's key to remember that you try before you buy. Delivery and returns are both free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. So give it a go today. Get started with Stitch Fix and support our podcast in doing so by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co dot UK forward slash athletic. On to the final part of the show now and the one part that isn't affected by the current circumstances around football. And of course, that is the EFL Rewind. Last week, I took us back just a couple of years. It wasn't one to the dark ages. It was a couple of years ago to a promotion race because, of course, we are that is something we're going to be lacking in the next couple of weeks. But now on to what everybody likes to talk about, a an EFL goal-scoring legend. Such a, risk, a rich <laughs> history in the EFL. We are never lacking ideas for EFL Rewind. This week's topic, somewhat inspired, George, by your good self, by what you did a few weeks ago on Giuliano Grazioli and Barnett. I was looking for similar relationships between players and clubs. And I think I found a cracker, someone that I remember getting very excited about as a young football fan. The story starts in the the late 90s, early 2000s. There's a youth player, a striker. Firstly, he's with Southend United. Uh, At 17, though, he turns down a scholarship there in order to sign for West Ham, where he's part of the same youth team as Jermaine Defoe, Rio Ferdinand, Glenn Johnson. He's a striker. But he's released in 2003. West Ham have no use for him. For this player, it's important to stay around his family setup. But there's no EFL interest at that time. And he starts to think maybe professional football isn't for him. So he signs for Grey's Athletic in Essex. They're playing in the Conference South. In 2003-2004, his first full season in adult football, this player scores 37 goals in all competitions and starts to think actually maybe EFL football is for me now that summer as you'd expect tons of football league interest and trials all summer but for some reason he stays at Grays to start the next season I'm not entirely sure why given he should have had the pick of EFL clubs in league one and league two but it doesn't last long he keeps scoring and on the 4th of October he signed 
by Southend United, his boyhood club, on loan at first because manager Steve Tilson has lost Laurie Dudfield and Drew Broughton to injury. He needs a backup. Ten days after signing, this player lines up at Roots Hall as Southend hosts Swansea. This Swansea side, a top of League Two at the time. Lee Trundle is up front. They're a cracking side. In fact, in this game, Trundle sets up two goals and hits the bar from 50 yards, which sounds about right for a standard Lee Trundle game around this time. But this isn't about Trundle, because this new name on the South End team sheet, making his debut age 20, having been there from 14 to 17, is, of course, Freddie Eastwood. He lines up for kickoff, and then this happens. Blues with Ryan Clark, the... On loan goalkeeper, replacing Daryl Flahaven, who's suspended. One of many changes, another being the man in your picture, Freddie Eastwood coming into the strike force. And we just signed from Grace. Here's Gower. And Gray, early charge of Southend! And an early chance for Freddie Eastwood, who gets the goal in his debut after just seconds. That must be one of the fastest ever Southend United goals. Freddie Eastwood scores, and I cannot exaggerate this enough, one of the quickest goals I've ever seen on his debut for Southend, his first ever league match. Seven seconds it takes. And listening to that clip, you can find the video on YouTube. I still don't quite understand how it happens so quickly. It doesn't really make sense, uh, but it happened. He scores again after 58 minutes. Then... On 87, he scores a third. A debut hat-trick for the South End kid, Freddie Eastwood. Absolutely unbelievable scenes. Now, what's interesting to know about Eastwood at this time, what many people will remember, is that Eastwood was a proud member of a Romany travelling community that resided on Cranfield Park Avenue, which is a site just next to a dual carriageway in Basildon. And Phil O'Reilly, who was the secretary at Grey's Athletic, where he played for a season and a bit, He talked about Eastwood in this sense, saying he was from a very close-knit family, family very important to him. It was a standing joke here at Gray's after he left that he'd be seen on a Saturday morning exercising his horse with a cart on the A127, and then he'd go and play for Southend in the afternoon. Several people saw him exercising his horse on the A road. We had to be flexible with him because of his lifestyle. But he was very close and his father came with him to every game. So that is something of an unusual wrinkle to this story. But apart from a hat-trick on debut, this was no flash in the pan for Southend or Eastwood. 19 regular season goals that year, his first in the EFL, was followed by the winner in a playoff semi-final against Northampton, one of the teams that had given him a trial the summer before, and then the opener in the playoff final, a 2-0 win for Southend, they're promoted. A hell of a first season in professional football. If anything, though, Eastwood got better in League One. And with it, so did Southend. Champions of League One in their first season, like Luton last season. Back-to-back promotions. Eastwood, joint top scorer with Billy Sharp in League One. He scored twice on the day Blues clinched promotion to the championship. So double promotion with Steve Tilson in the dugout with... Southend legend Adam Barrett at the back, now first team coach at Millwall, and Freddie Eastwood up front banging the goals in. He stayed loyal to Southend amid plenty of interest, as you'd expect. He starts the 2006-07 season in the championship with a 1-0 win, and he scores the only goal. Things could not be going any better. That interest in him exploded, nationwide interest, after the most memorable moment of his career, scoring a famous free kick in a League Cup win against the Manchester United of Wayne Rooney and Cristiano Ronaldo. It's Eastwood this time! Oh, what a goal! Freddie Eastwood has given Southend the lead with a goal that any Manchester United player would be proud to score. This is an unbelievable first two years of a professional career. Sometimes you hear players that are not a great scorer of goals, but a scorer of great goals. Sometimes you get strikers, pure poachers, six-yard box strikers, who score lots of goals, but none particularly eye-catching. Eastwood could do it all. He scored plenty. He scored crackers. It's quite hard for me to imagine, and I almost got quite emotional thinking about this. It's hard for me to imagine that you could love a player any more than this as a fan. Imagine being a Southend fan, a local lad that you pick up from non-league, 
scores after seven seconds of his debut against the team top of the league, keeps scoring for two years to win you back-to-back promotions and take you to the second tier. It's hard for me to imagine many purer footballing love affairs, apart from, of course, Grazioli and Barnett. (laughs) But I guess this might only be heightened by the fact that it doesn't continue in this vein. Of course it doesn't, otherwise we'd be talking about uh, the, the Jamie Vardy story before Jamie Vardy even happened. After Southend were relegated from the championship in that first season, they cashed in on Eastwood. Of course they did. First, Wolves, who spent over a million pounds on him, and then Coventry bought him for over a million quid from Wolves. But at both clubs in the Midlands, it never quite happened. The spark wasn't there. The brilliant goals were lacking. There are plenty of thoughts and reasons as to why. Only four goals in 35 for Mick McCarthy's Wolves. Mick couldn't get the best out of him, sold him to Coventry. And I think they were quite happy to get most of their money back. That's how poor he'd been for Wolves. Chris Coleman at Coventry couldn't get the best out of him. He actually spent a few years with Coventry, scoring 18 in 124. And then, of course, with that not working out, he heads back to Southend, first on loan and then permanently for a year and a bit. He adds 12 more goals to his Southend tally, 70 overall for the Shrimpers. But injuries have taken their toll and Eastwood's end to his career was in no way as explosive as the beginning. He actually retires aged 30. That's only six years ago, so he's only 36 now. A lovely end to the story, because you don't hear a huge amount from Freddie these days. But what an incredible start to his career. What an incredible love affair with the Shrimpers. But a nice end to it. His son, Freddie Eastwood Jr., is on the books at <laughs> South End too. He's 17. He is part of a very talented crop of young South End players. He's been on loan at Canvey Island earlier this season, no doubt with an eye for the spectacular, just like his dad. And hopefully, maybe, he could be part of a successful South End side in the near future. What a magnificent, magnificent story. And I hope South End fans listening who need probably a bit of cheering up given the state of the, uh, the club at the moment, given the season they've been having, um, I think that's what EFL Rewind is all about. And I loved that trip down memory lane at Roots Hall. We're also always keen to hear from you, the listener. I said it's hard to imagine many purer footballing love affairs. And I'd like to hear from you. Is that true? Have you got a better one? Tweet us at NTT20pod at The Athletic UK. And maybe a different story could be part of EFL Rewind in the future. <laughs> That's all for this week's Going Up, Going Down podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. As mentioned at the top of the show, theathletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod. That's EFL. P-O-D. That's where to go if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, but you'd like to give it a go today. 40% off an annual subscription if you follow that link. So much written and audio content being offered. Uh, we'll be back again next week with the Going Up, Going Down podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what you're enjoying on this pod, what you'd like to see more of, and any EFL Rewind hints and tips. It's always good to hear from you, and thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>